So this morning, we're in week three of section two of our foundations curriculum, which if you don't know, in case this is your first time, foundations is a two-year curriculum through basic doctrines of the Bible, basic doctrines of the Christian life. It's in four sections, four semesters, if you will. And so section two focuses in on man, especially sin, and then we're going to move towards the Savior. Because one of the things we're going to notice this morning is if we get a clear view of our sin, then we can look to our Savior. And I could even state it a little stronger. Unless we get a clear view of our sin, we won't be able to get a clear look at our Savior. So this is the third of three weeks looking at the doctrine of sin. Two weeks ago, I was here with you and we looked at the fall in Genesis 3. Last week, Dan Mackett was here teaching on the effects of the fall. So what effect does the fall have in our life? And then this week, our final lesson on what's traditionally called the doctrine of sin is called original sin. It says lesson 24 at the top of your handout because it's in section two. It's all one curriculum. Just trying to help you see kind of where we're touching down as we start this morning, especially if it's your first time. So original sin, we should note what that word means. Original sin on your handout is being distinguished from actual sin. Original sin, actual sin. The difference is that original sin speaks about a state that we've inherited from Adam, which we'll flesh out a lot more this morning. Actual sin speaks about our practice in our life. Actual actions. You see that? Original sin speaks about a state. Actual sin speaks about practices in our life. So original sin refers not just to the original sin of Adam, though you might think that looking at the phrase, It actually refers to our state of original sin from birth, from even conception, as the Bible would talk about it. One of the things I tried to do the first week I was here was speak about how a doctrine like this one and the other ones in Foundations shape a Christian's worldview. It shapes the way we understand ourselves, our world, God. Everyone has an understanding of our world, of ourselves, of God. Uh, Christians, we want ours to be founded by what the scriptures say. So I just want to give you what I think is probably the most popular alternative to what we're going to talk about this morning. When we talk about original sin, the state of man, we're talking about what human beings are like in this world, what each each of us are like, me, you, each of you, everyone you meet, right? Well, there's another popular answer, and I'm going to write it on the board. Man, that means humankind is born free, but everywhere in chains. It's a quote. It's a very popular quote. Anybody know who said that? Not Augustine. Rousseau Rousseau is correct. Jean-Jacques Rousseau said this in about the 1600s in Geneva. He was uh, what's been called a romantic looking back. And he's giving you what he thinks about humanity. What we're going to see this morning is this is the exact opposite (laughs) of what the Bible teaches. This is intending to deny original sin. The state of humanity that we've all inherited from Adam. So this is Rousseau. What's interesting about Rousseau's view 
is that it's everywhere today. It's the spirit of the age. See, our problem, Rousseau would say, is environmental. It's the situation we're put in. Our greatest problem is everything around us. Our circumstances, other people, the family we've been born into, the state that we live in. It's environmental. That's what he means when he says man is born free, but everywhere in chains. And if you asked Rousseau, he'd say the city is the worst place to be. Education is the worst thing we could do because we're putting chains on a person who was naturally born free. Can you hear how that's underneath and behind a lot of the conversations you have with people today? I see some nods. What I want to show you is that this is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. We're going to look at a Christian's view of humanity in our world today, which includes original sin. See, Rousseau thought that the main problem we have is environmental. I want to argue that from the Bible, the main problem we have is internal. Our main problem is not environmental. It's not what's around us. It's not the environment that we're in. It's actually internal. It's inside us. That's our problem. So if we want to get a clear look at Jesus at what he does in redemption and reconciliation and all of his person and work, we're going to have to start by getting a clear view of ourselves. So that takes us to the main point. The main idea is on your handout at the top. I'll read it. The original sin of Adam was transmitted and imputed to the entire human race, which means we are conceived and born with a polluted nature, rendering us hostile to God, unrighteous before God, and unable to reconcile with God. Now, if you know where we're going in our foundations curriculum, you know why this is phrased this way. Next week, we're going to look at reconciliation. The week after that, we're going to look at redemption. And then for the next three months, we're going to look at the person of Christ. Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our substitute. Jesus, our priest. Jesus, our victor. Those are the weeks coming up. We have to start here. We're only going to get a sense of how good the good news is if we get a sense of how bad the bad news is. And the bad news is this. The original sin of Adam was transmitted. That means conveyed, carried across, given, imputed. That means credited. It's an accounting term that we'll talk more about. To the entire human race, which means we are conceived from the moment of conception and born from the moment of birth with a polluted nature, rendering us hostile to God, unrighteous before God, and unable to reconcile with God. We're going to do this in three steps. One, how original sins transmitted, which I'm just going to start in Romans 5 by showing you, I think, the clearest place in the Bible that teaches this. That's the first half of your handout. On the back page, two, what do we mean when we talk about original sin? What's our state as sinners? Well, it's going to be two things, guilt and pollution that we inherit from Adam. We'll say more about that which is going to take us to a really old doctrine called total depravity. We'll talk about what that means and what that doesn't mean. And then we're going to kind of land the plane this morning, I hope, on a hopeful note. So if it feels heavy right now, that's because we're trying to get a clear sense of the bad news so we can get a clear sense of the good news. So we're going to be leaning into the Lord Jesus, considering him by the time we end. Okay, so that's what I want to do this morning. Any questions about that before we dive into Romans chapter 5? 
Any questions about that before we dive into Romans chapter 5? Zach, will you read Romans 5 for us? Starting in verse 12 down to verse 21. Zach. Now let me ask you a couple of questions about the passage we just heard, if you're looking at it. Number one, who are the main characters, there's two of them, in this passage for Paul? Adam and Jesus. Who else is involved in this passage? Us. Keep going. Well, not quite there yet. Who are we a part of? Let me do it this way. How many of us are involved? How many human beings are involved? Everybody. So Paul, in his theology, is saying everybody relates to one of those two men, Adam or Jesus. You see that? Look at how the passage begins. When did sin come into the world? Verse 12. Through one man. Who's that? Adam. That's right. What does Adam's sin bring into the world? Verse 12 still. Death. Adam's sin brings death into the world. Why? Why does death go to everyone because of Adam's sin? It's in verse 12. Because we all sinned. Now, wait a minute. We didn't all sin. We weren't all there. What does that mean? That's the question. So hang on a second, Paul, verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. Death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. How did all sin? In Adam. Which is really clear by the time you get to verse 19. Look down to verse 19. As by the one man's disobedience, the many, who's that? All 
all of us, then why doesn't he say all of us? That's the right answer. But why doesn't he say all of us? Go on, Eileen. Come on, Eileen. Mm. Yeah, you're seeing that in verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who... Ah, you got to receive. If you receive the Lord Jesus, you get everything the Lord Jesus brings. Grace, free gift, righteousness, life. No more death. No more transgression life and righteousness. So when you're in the one man, Adam, you get what Adam brings, which is what? Sin, death, transgression, judgment, condemnation. This is the language of the book of Romans. If you're in the one man, Jesus, what do you get? Life, righteousness. Keep going. Forgiveness. Keep going. Grace. Yeah. Excellent. You get the point. You're in one of these two, Adam or Jesus, whoever you're in determines what you get death or life. So how does Eileen know that the many in verse 19 is everybody who's in Adam? She's right, by the way. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, whose is that? Adam's. Led to condemnation for who? All All men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You see how the many in verse 19 is the all men in verse 18? It's one continuous argument. Don't pull verse 19 out of verse 17 and verse 18 in the paragraph. Make sense? Okay, so this is, if you read the theologians, they'll tell you Romans 5, 12 to 21 is the clearest place we see original sin in the Bible. There's lots of them, but this is a really clear one. Adam sinned, one trespass, sin comes into the world, goes to all men, and therefore death goes to all men. Now, a lot of what we're going to talk about this morning is how, why? Because what do you think when you hear that? Uh, what part? Like the whole thing or just? I get what Adam gives me. That well, yeah. Thank you. Who said that? Excellent. What's your name? Laura. Laura. Thank you, Laura. Yeah, it sounds unfair to our ears. I think it sounds unfair probably to most people you'll talk to. Anybody ever heard that sounds unfair? Raise your hand. So that's what we want to kind of try and deal with if we can. There's been two answers to that in the history of the church, which we're going to get to at the bottom of page one of your handout. First, I just thought it'd be helpful to look at what a couple of statements of faith say as they try to summarize what we're talking about. So first is the Baptist Confession of Faith in London in 1689, 400 years ago. Who will read that? Jeff, will you read that for us? The Baptist Confession of Faith reads, Our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we your death. For from this, death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, holy to and all the faculties and parts of soul and body. All actual transgressions Antagonistic, yeah. To all good. 
So the Baptist Confession of Faith there is just summarizing what they're seeing in Romans 5 and other places. I want, you, I want to point you to two specific phrases there that I hope we're primed to see. Look at the phrase original righteousness. Original righteousness describes the state that Adam was created in. Innocence, righteousness, he did what was right before God. Then Genesis 3 happens, which we've been looking at for the last two weeks. And we get original sin, which is a state that we're now all born in because of Adam, which we've seen really clearly in Romans 5. Look at that second paragraph there. All actual transgressions proceed from this original corruption. You see that distinction I was talking to you about at the very beginning between original and actual? That's what they're doing here. We sin because we're sinners. It actually turns out simple sentences like that are really important for Christian theology. It's not most fundamentally the case that we are sinners because we sin. I'm going to say it again. It is not most fundamentally the case that we are sinners because we sin. It's the opposite. We sin because we're sinners. It's our nature. It's what we do because it's what we want. Look at the Delray Baptist Church Statement of Faith. This is our church's statement of faith. Sharif, will you read that? Middle of the page. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created with innocence, but voluntarily rebelled against God and brought sin into the world. As a result, all people are born as sinners, inheriting the condemnation of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Thank you. So you can see how our church statement of faith, which comes from a 200-year-old document in New Hampshire, another set of Baptists, 200 years after, the London Baptists in 1689, you see what we're doing here? There's a line of progression that people reading the Bible who believe in the Lord Jesus have confessed this for a long, long time. So the DRBC statement of faith reads a lot like the London Baptist statement of faith. Why? Because we think it's a good summary of the Bible. I want, to, I want to draw your attention to one phrase there. Voluntarily rebelled is really important. So uh, we need to not have sin before there's sin. If I can just put it provocatively. You can, in fact, you can't have sin before sin. What does Paul say is when sin enters the world? We've already read it from Romans 5. That's right. Sin came into the world through one man. When's that? I heard Adam. I also heard the garden. Those are both right. Genesis 3. Yeah, the first, the original sin, if you will. God says, you can have every tree of the garden. Just don't eat from that one. And then they eat from that one. And then sin enters the world. Why am I saying all this? For a purpose, I promise. They voluntarily rebelled against God. There was nothing in them that was compelling them to rebel against God. They weren't like us. We have something, a problem, our most fundamental problem inside us, a sin nature, which causes us to want sin and to do sin. Adam didn't have that when he was first created. It's really important that we square that because to be human, definitionally, is not to be a sinner, necessarily. Adam, when he was created, was human in a state of original righteousness. Jesus, when he became incarnate, was human without sin. 
So what's true is, in the new heavens and the new earth, when the Lord Jesus comes back and brings his people home, we will be without sin. And we won't stop being human. In fact, we'll be more human. You see that? So I think when we, when we deal with the question of evil, the question of God's goodness, it's really helpful to establish some of these categories that are really clear in the Bible. That to be human is not necessarily to have a sin nature, though of course everyone this side of Adam's fall does. Right? That's the very thing the Lord Jesus is redeeming us from. So we want to hold on to both of those. Created with original righteousness, fallen into original sin. You see that? All right, what questions do you have about that so far? Then we're going to try and dive into the transmission question. How come it's not, or how come it's actually fair? Or is it? That'll be where we're going next. Zach? One question I've heard before is if Adam didn't have a sin nature at the start, how did he end up desiring something evil? Yeah. Yeah, uh, only because this has come up a number of times in Sunday school over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to give a short answer, and then if, if folks want to talk about this more afterwards, that'd be a great time to do that. My short answer is deception, which is really clear in 1 Timothy 2. The serpent comes along and persuades Adam and Eve that God is lying to them. He's withholding from them. God can't love you until you know. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's exactly like how the serpent tempts us, right? It's exactly like how our flesh and the world tempt us. So it's deception. Adam knows he's supposed to be like God. The serpent says, God just doesn't want you to be like him. Be like God. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's deception. He makes what is evil seem good. Caleb? What does it mean sin is not counted where there is no law? Hmm. Great question. So that's from Romans 5, verse 13. I think it just means we wouldn't know what it was until we got a clear word from God that tells us. So sin, just a really simple definition of sin is that it's the breaking of God's law. That's always true, even if God hasn't spoken his law. But as soon as God has spoken his law, we know that that thing is sin because it's breaking God's law. I think that's all that's happening there. There's other places in, in uh, like Galatians 3 where it talks about how the law was our guardian that led us to Christ. Y'all know that passage? Similar themes happening. The law is speaking clearly. God is speaking clearly through his law to tell us what sin is. Laura? What's your uh, maybe response? This may be kind of outside the bounds of this class, but like if someone... I've Those are my favorite say, questions. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I've heard people say something to the effect of, well, if I were in the garden, I wouldn't have eaten. Laura, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. <laughs> okay. That's exactly where we're going. Okay. So I asked my wife last night, she did not know you were going to ask that question, and she was not speaking to you, obviously. But I asked my wife last night, I'm teaching on original sin tomorrow, what should I say? And literally, this is what she said. If you think that if you were there, you'd have done it differently, that's just pride. (laughs) That's all she said. I was like, wow, that's good. I'm going to quote you. So there that is. Uh, Okay, so... Let's, let's try to address that and the fairness question all at once. I'm going to give you two answers to that question in the history of the church. They're on the bottom of your hand out there, numbered one and two. Number one is natural headship. So these are describing our relationship to Adam in the garden. Can somebody turn to Hebrews 7, 9, and, and 10? Who will do that? Becca, you got that one? And then can somebody also, we're going to read verse 19 again in a second. Who will do that? Got that one, Joseph. Thank you. 
Okay, so natural headship and federal headship are two different answers to this same question. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think they can both be true to a degree, but they're definitely different perspectives about our relationship to Adam. The first one, natural headship, speaks about a real relationship we have to Adam, that he is our parent. He is our ancestor. We are his descendants. That's what you see in the, first, in the two confessions of faith there. In the middle, our first parents, Adam and Eve. That relationship is really important. That we've all descended from Adam and Eve through natural birth is one answer to the transmission of sin. Why is it appropriate? Why is it not unfair? Double negative. How is it actually fair? Well, natural headship is, is one answer. So, Becca, will you read Hebrews 7? Um, yeah. Yeah, so I just want to give you, uh, you probably know this passage, Hebrews 7, we're talking about this priest named Melchizedek. Who is this guy? Well, he shows up in Genesis 14, and he just kind of pops onto the scene out of nowhere, and you're like, who is this guy? And then the author of Hebrews is making a theological point about how this really important figure in the Old Testament doesn't have a genealogy. We don't know who his parents are. He just kind of comes on the scene, right? And one of the things that's significant is that Melchizedek, in the argument of the book of Hebrews, is a higher order of priesthood than Levi. In the Old Testament, all the priests were Levites, except for that one guy, Melchizedek. So the, the author of Hebrews is giving you, how do we know that Melchizedek is a higher priest than Levi? Oh, it's because Abraham gave tithes, gave tithes to him. That's how. And Levi was around in Abraham's loins. That's what Becca just read. So he's like really there because of natural headship. Abraham is his father. He's his father's father and his father's father's father. But you get my point. The genealogy is the reason. So the author of Hebrews speaks in a way we probably wouldn't normally, but he says it and we have to deal with it, which is Levi was there in Abraham's loins. He's not making a scientific point. He's making a theological point. That because Levi comes from Abraham and Abraham gives money to Melchizedek, it shows you that Melchizedek is higher in some sense. He's paid homage to, right, by Abraham. Okay, so therefore Melchizedek and Levi, right? So is it a significant, and then this is just Hebrews, is it significant that Jesus wasn't a Levite? How could he be our priest? That's the, the argument of Hebrews. Well, there's another priesthood. Let me tell you about it. The Melchizedekian priesthood. And turns out it's superior to Levi. All of that about the book of Hebrews aside for a second. I'm just giving you a precedent for natural headship. In the first century, Jewish mind, Jewish Christian mind, in the mind of the apostles, there's a real relationship between me and my parents. Even if we're talking about my grandfather's grandfather. This is why genealogies play such a big role in the Old Testament. Because they think about the relationships of people differently than we do. They think about family descent and lineage and genealogy differently than we do. This is probably one of our main blind spots. Where we live and when we live, 21st century America, we just think about the individual. Where they lived and when they lived, they thought about groups. Individualistic versus collectivist, right? 
So there's this real relationship between me and my family, no matter how far removed I am from them. That's natural headship. Adam and Eve are our first parents. So what they do, we're accountable for, and in some sense, it transmits to us through their line. You see that? Now that's one answer. I tried to make it as strong as I could because I actually think the second answer is a better answer, if you can believe it. The second answer is called federal headship. You're probably familiar with the word federal from government. And you're familiar with how this works. We elect leaders once every four years, once every couple of years, right, depending on which, which uh, election it is, and they stand in our place over across the river. They represent us, those who have voted them into office. They're supposed to do what we ask them to do. Sometimes they don't, but original sin, there you go. Thank you for that laugh. The point is federal headship speaks to a representation that is very significant. Like this person is my representative standing in my place. In the Bible, the language that's often used is covenantal. That there's a covenant relationship between God and his people. With Adam, there's a covenant relationship between God and Adam and Eve, which sounds like this. Work and keep the garden. Eat of any tree you want to. Just don't eat this tree. That covenant relationship is with God and Adam and all of Adam's descendants. And it's broken as soon as Adam eats from the fruit of the tree. Sin came into the world through one man. But listen to verse 19 of chapter 5. Joseph. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So we were made sinners because Adam sinned. He was our federal head. So if you were there, you would have done the same thing because he represented you. He did what you would have done. Right? Question? I don't know if this is number one or number two or something else, but in the Garden of Eden, Adam could freely eat from the tree of life. After they sinned, they could no longer eat from the tree of life. And in Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will once again be able to eat from the true tree of life. And so, if it does that play a relationship to why all men sin, because that that cutoff from life happened at the fall, or is that something like because Jesus is you know. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Mm. And that life came into the world. Mm-hmm. And I am the way and the truth and the life. And mm. so if there's that absence of that life, is that why death spreads to all men? So I am not sure. I don't know that we know that Adam was eating from the tree of life uh, in the garden, because I don't think we're told that. We're certainly told that when he's kicked out of the garden, the reason is we don't want him to eat from the tree of life. I don't know that that implies a particular relationship to him and the tree of life. He was already eating from it. I don't think we know. And I don't want to speculate. So I'm not sure. I think the two traditional ways, so the first, natural headship, goes all the way back to Augustine. The second, federal headship, goes all the way back to the Reformation. um, And maybe even beyond that, depending on who you read. So the two traditional ways we've talked about, how is it fair? Well, we're his descendants, and he's our representative. 
He stood in our place before God. When God looked at Adam, he saw the whole human race. You can see that in uh, Paul's theology again in 1 Corinthians 15 at the bottom of your handout. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has, has come also the resurrection of the dead. And this verse is so important. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for the topic we're talking about. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall, shall all be made alive. That same parallels in Romans 5. What we want to see is if we, if we disrupt one side of that parallel, we endanger the other. And we don't want to do that. Anybody in this room really thankful that the Lord Jesus stands in their place? Amen, me too. He's our representative, right? He is our federal head. We had one federal head. He did not serve us well, Adam. Now we have another one, the Lord Jesus. He served us better than we deserve. So I, I just, federal headship, that covenantal relationship, I think is really helpful as we think about everybody's going to be either in Adam or in Jesus. And just to summarize what I've already said, if you're in Adam, Romans 5 is clear, you get what Adam brings. If you're in Jesus, you get what Jesus brings. And everybody is in one or the other. Any questions about that? Sharif, yeah. So as an intermediate, like in the Mosaic Covenant, Moses is kind of the, I don't want to say the head, but we see him standing between God and, and, and Israel. Yeah. Um, would you say because there's only two camps that you're in, he's kind of a placeholder for the mm. coming Christ, you know. I mean, the Israelites were living by faith, you know, they weren't being saved by obeying the law. Right. Just by faith living, obeying God in that way. But where's Moses uh, standing in this? That's really what I guess I'm getting at. Yep. Uh, let me see if I can draw this. So, the Bible progresses in the form of covenants. This is Adam. This is Noah. And you can see these really should touch each other. It should be like this. You can see uh, this is all of creation. This is Adam and Noah. Obviously, you have the flood right here. So it's almost like a new start with Noah. That Noah gets the same commandment that Adam got, the same commission, I should say. Fill and subdue the earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the creatures that crawl on the land, so on and so forth. Then you get Abraham, one man, who's told, your descendants are going to be a great nation. Now notice what happened here. We went from Adam and the whole world, Noah and the whole world, to Abraham and just his family. Then we get with Moses, uh, Israel, which is the nation that came from Abraham, at the time of the Exodus, right? Then we get with David, just a line of kings. I should do it like this. Somebody should not have let me have a whiteboard and a marker. Thank you for that encouragement. Then we get David, and it's just a line of kings. So it's no longer Abraham and all his descendants, Moses and all the people of Israel. Now it's just David, 
and his sons. It's one line. So then by the time you get to Jesus, everything is fulfilled. And then you have, of course, the new heavens and the new earth with everybody. So it's going to be the promises of God are given along this line. They're given to one who stands in the place of all, one who stands in the place of all, one and his descendants from whom a bunch of nations are going to come, one who stands in the place of the nation, one who has a line of kings who comes after him, and then one person in whom life will finally be found. One person who will finally fill and subdue the earth, who will finally have dominion, who will finally hear God's word and heed it. All these other guys failed. They heard God's word, but they didn't do what he said. And so they themselves had to be, had to be disciplined. They had to receive the fruit of their ways. Ah, but the Lord Jesus, he, he has no sin. So he can substitute for us in our sin. Sharif's question was, what about Moses? I would say Moses is a a mediator who stands in place of the people of Israel. Um, The reason this structure is really clear in my mind is because Adam is God's son. Noah is a new Adam. Israel, Exodus 4.22, is God's firstborn son. So this theme of sonship, and by the way, who's God's son? Yeah, of course, it's Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus. He's the son who becomes son. He's the eternal son who becomes son of man, who becomes a man. This is really not what we're here to do here, Sharif, but there that is. If anyone has any questions about that, I'd be glad to talk more afterwards. Let's flip over to the back side of your handout and do what I'm supposed to be doing today, which is inherited guilt and pollution. So we've talked about original sin. We've talked about how that's the state that we are all born in because of Adam's transgression. Now we need to say a little bit more about what that means. In theology, original sin conveys two things, at least and always. One, guilt. Two, pollution. You don't want to lose either one lest I distract some of you. Not what we're here for. I got carried away. Well, there that is. Guilt and pollution. So um, what that means is we stand in a relationship to to Adam as our federal head, as our representative, as the one who covenantally stands in our place before God, and we get what he brings, which is guilt. His disobedience, as we heard on the first page, is imputed to us. Start there. We haven't even been born yet. So we don't have, we haven't yet sinned because we haven't been born. But we're born guilty because Adam has sinned and he's our head. He's our natural head and our federal head. He's guilty before God. So why are people, how are people born? Well, they're born by nature, children of wrath. That's what Ephesians 2 says. Like the rest of mankind. They're born, they're conceived in sin in their mother's wombs. I should say we, not they. We are conceived in sin. Psalm 51, right? That's David's confession. We are born children 
of wrath. We're born guilty, for in Adam all die. So that's inherited guilt. The second one is inherited pollution, which is probably more often what we think of. Both are important. Inherited pollution can be summarized in two ways. One, total depravity, and two, total inability. We'll talk about each. Pollution conveys the idea that my nature is corrupt. I sin because I'm a sinner. I sin because that's what I want to do. James would say, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Ah, it's because your desires are at war within you. You want and you don't have. That's why you're fighting. So there's this pollution of every part of us. That's what the, the London Baptists said, right? Every faculty and power of the body and soul. That's old language, but it's helpful. It just means every part of us. You're thinking, you're feeling, you're doing, right? Your head, your heart, your hands. Every part stained by sin, polluted as a result of what Adam did. I think you can see this really clear in a couple of places. Maybe one of the more clear places is Psalm 14. If you want to turn there, Psalm 14. And you may know Paul picks up Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3 which we'll turn to in here, here in just a second. But just to start with Psalm 14, this is, uh, this is David. Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are, there's that word, corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. Who seek after God? Does he find any? No, they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Flip over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I just want you to see Paul pick this same idea up from the words of the psalm. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. Everybody say, no, not one. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Everybody say, not even one. Not even one. Who's indicted here? How many of us? All of us. Yeah. So all of us are in scope when we talk about original sin. All of us guilty because of Adam. All of us polluted because of Adam. One other thing I, I want to show you from the text, and then we'll talk a little bit about total depravity, what it does and doesn't mean, is uh, Genesis 6. Flip to Genesis 6 if you want to, or you can just listen. Genesis 6. This is in my diagram. <laughs> Um, before the flood, God says, Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How many intentions of the thoughts of his heart? Every. And what are they? Evil. 
And that's why God floods the earth. He destroys everything that he's made except for Noah and his family. See, Noah and his family, God gives grace that he might sort of do a restart, if you will, another Adam who's going to fill and subdue the earth. And the question I think we should ask if we're reading Genesis 6, 7, 8, did the flood change the nature of man? After the flood, those who are born of Noah's family, is every intention of the thoughts of their heart evil only continually? Or is, does that stop being true because of flood waters? Well, the Bible answers. Rome, uh, Genesis chapter 8, right after the flood, verse 21. Noah's building an altar to the Lord. Genesis chapter 8, 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God is saying, even though man's nature hasn't changed, I'm not going to destroy the earth again, which is what we deserve. The theologians would say, we're totally depraved. That's the indictment. That's the hello my name is, totally depraved. (laughs) What that means and doesn't mean is really important. Total speaks about all of our parts, every part of us. Depraved speaks about that pollution or, or corruption, right? So you could call it complete corruption if you want to. What does that not mean? Doesn't mean that we can't do anything good in any sense. Of course not. So if you, I'm just going to say one thing about that. If you read uh, Reformed theologians, they'll talk about three kinds of good that unbelievers can do. Natural good, like a father loving his daughter. Civic good, like somebody uh, trying to establish a, a, a society in which people flourish. And religious good, like somebody giving to the poor. Unbelievers can do all three of those things. So when we say that everyone is totally depraved, we are not saying that they're unable to do good in any sense. Jesse, right? Yeah. You were about to say something? Yeah, I was going to say what you said. Oh, great. There you go. Upvote that one. <laughs> it doesn't change that we're so created in the image of God. Amen. Yes, that's exactly right. Tell me your name. Mariah. Mariah. Great. Mariah's dead on. We don't lose the image of God. It's not erased. It's not exterminated. Um, James 3.9 affirms that the image of God is still in place. Every human being deserving dignity and respect and in some sense honor, honor that's appropriate for a creature made in God's image. So sin has corrupted that. It's made us unable to image God in the way we ought to, but it hasn't endangered our value or worth. What else does total depravity not mean, Caleb? Oh, I had a question. Okay. Uh, hang on one second. Let's, let's do the rest of total depravity doesn't mean and total depravity does mean. What else does total depravity not mean? I'm looking for at least one more. What we do is... It's not always as bad as it can be. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what I was looking for. I'm also just looking at the time so I don't keep you here too long. Yes. Um, it doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. We're not erasing distinctions between sins. Some sins are worse than others. It's really clear from the Bible. 
right? Lying to someone is not as bad as killing them. I think that's kind of just common sense, right? Now, of course, before God, all sin is equally damnable. Before others, some sins are much more destructive, right? So we're not denying that sins are more or less awful, okay? We're not saying that everybody is as bad as Hitler. That's not what total depravity means. So what does total depravity mean? Let me ask you first. What does total depravity mean? Jesse? Everything we do is infected with sin. Exactly, yeah. Every part of us, our thinking, our feeling, our doing, all polluted by sin. That's right. One other thing. What does total depravity mean? You can't educate your way out of sin. That's also true. Rousseau is wrong. Education is not the basic problem. Becky? It means the root is bad. It makes more often it's being radical depravity. Yes. 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 You've been reading R.C. Sproul, haven't you? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, rad- radical depravity is what he calls it. So he's just talking about the root, most basically, is polluted. So everything that comes out of it, all the fruit, is polluted. That's right. Laura? We can't or won't see God on our own. Yes. So this is where I'm trying to go. Total depravity means everything we do doesn't please God. So it's not that it's not good in any sense. It means it's not good before God. This is really clear in a place like Isaiah 64, 6, which is on your handout, right? We're unable to do good before God because even our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, filthy rags, right? Even the best things we do are polluted. Shannon? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. Yes, before God, even the good things we do, whether it be natural good, father loving his child, religious good, giving to the poor, civic good, helping to order society for human flourishing, those things before God don't add any, they don't please God, they don't make you praiseworthy before him, they don't put you in right standing with him, because even those things, um, I think in almost every case we would say, the motive is still wrong, right? Doing something good because you love yourself and want to be seen as good before others is not doing something good. Not in the most expansive sense. Not in the before God sense, right? So we just want to hold on to both. uh, That it's not good in no sense, but it's not good in the most important sense before God, right? So that's that's what we're meaning when we do total depravity, or when we say total depravity, what it doesn't mean, what it does mean. Let me say what total inability is, and I'll pause for some more questions. Um, Total inability just means we can't change our our nature. Our pollution is such that we can't make ourselves not sinners. We can't make ourselves good before God. We can't earn righteousness. We need the Lord Jesus to do that. We need to, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's how we're going to be counted righteous. The same guilt and pollution that was imputed to us by Adam, it's in the same way, imputation, that righteousness can come to us through the Lord Jesus, right? So we don't have any righteousness of our own, but if we look to the Lord Jesus, 
his righteousness becomes our own through faith. Right? It's, so we're going to be unable to change ourselves. Jeremiah would say, can the leopard change his spots? The answer is no. Right? Can the sinner stop sinning? The answer is no. Apart from the Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. Any questions about inherited guilt and pollution? Caleb? Um, Ezekiel 18 says, The soul who sins, or 1820, The yep. soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. But yep. The father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Yep. How does that match with inherited guilt? Yeah, in the same way that I think uh, Exodus 34 does. That the Lord will... So, so there's a complex relationship here um, that we want to be careful to think through well. So I just want to read this just so we can feel the tension. That there's not, there's not just going to be a simple answer here. Um, this is, you remember Exodus 33, Moses says, Show me your glory, Lord. Let me see your face. And the Lord says, You can't see my face and live because he's a sinner. If he sees the holy God, he'll be struck dead instantly. But... The Lord says, I will pass before you and proclaim my name. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, foreshadowing the Lord Jesus. If we hide in the Lord Jesus, we'll get God's grace and not his wrath. So then what happens in Exodus 34, when the Lord does it, when he passes before Moses and he declares his name, this is what he says. You know this passage. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord! A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Pause. When God said that he would make himself pass before Moses, do you know what he said? In Exodus 33, he said, I'll make all my... Does anybody know? Yes, his name. He'll declare his name. But he'll make all my goodness pass before you. You can go look at it if you don't believe me. He says, I'll, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Now, so far, that sounds like good to me. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious. He will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. But that's not all the Lord's goodness. Because the next thing it says is, but who will by no means clear the guilty? See, because God is good, he punishes sinners. He executes justice. That's part of his goodness. And then listen to this to answer Caleb's question. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Wait a second. I thought you just told me, Ezekiel, that the soul that sins shall die and that sons aren't going to suffer for their fathers and that fathers aren't going to suffer for their sins. Ah, but it's more complex than that. Ezekiel is, is trumpeting, if you will. He's declaring personal responsibility. That everyone suffers for their own sins. Everyone is held accountable for their own sins. Moses, through the mouth of the Lord, Exodus, is saying there's something about human society, family lineage, culture, that causes sins to go down family lines too. Right? Fathers, it turns out, actually look a lot like their sons. Sons, it turns out, actually look a lot like their fathers, right? So I think both are true. Um, the son is guilty for his own sin. The father is guilty for his own sin. 
But it turns out families and societies exercise strong influence on every member of it. This is again that earlier we were talking about the Western mind sees individuals, the ancient Eastern mind sees groups, right? We just don't want to lose one side of that because of the emphasis. So that'd be my answer. Um, we need to conclude because we're out of time. So the last thing on your handout there is kind of how we move into the next phase in foundations. What does this doctrine of sin mean for us? Well, I told you it was going to be heavy, and it is. We're all indicted, guilty before God, and polluted and unable to do good. But the good news is so good because there's no not one, because there's not even one who does righteous until the Lord Jesus. So this understanding of sin, if we get a clear sense of our sin, we can get a clear look at our Savior, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, No one can have a true or adequate understanding of the scriptural doctrine of salvation. You want to get saved and you want to glory in salvation? Not one of us can appreciate our salvation truly unless we realize the nature of the disease, the condition out of which we are to be saved by the gospel. And then I ended with 2 Corinthians 5, 21 which is hopefully clear by the time we've gotten all the way through this last hour. For our sake, God made the Lord Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you're here this morning and you're burdened by sin, either yours or someone else's or both, look to the Lord Jesus, the one who knew no sin, but became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become your own righteousness, that in the Lord Jesus you see us, all of us who have received your grace and have expressed repentance and faith, all of us who are in Christ are imputed with his righteousness that though we ourselves bring nothing but sin and guilt and pollution, even as we inherited it from Adam, we can come to the Lord Jesus and receive righteousness and life and victory over sin in increasing measure. We pray as we leave this place and go into the corporate worship service that you would be glorified in our lives, those of us who know you, that any who don't who are here would come to know you by repenting from sin and putting their trust in the Lord Jesus. And that all of us would glorify you and please you with our lives. That you'd give us, yeah, an increasing power by your spirit to have victory over sin and temptation in the Lord Jesus. That we would continue to repent and believe until the last day when we see him face to face. That you would complete the good work you started in us. That you would keep us from stumbling that we would have comfort and hope knowing that no one can snatch us out of the Lord Jesus' hand, even as he told us that no one can snatch us out of your hand. We pray that we'd rest in that great good news and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.